Have you ever spent much time speaking to a brick wall? If you've got teenagers, you have. That is, sometimes it's, it's like you think as they're looking at you, their eyes are on you, but you're, you must be communicating like you're Charlie Brown's teacher. Wow, wow, wow. And that's what you think they're hearing. It just doesn't seem to be getting through. Well, you can put the shoe on the other foot. Sometimes they wonder when they're speaking to us, am I speaking to a real human being or an android? You know, what am I actually communicating with? And so sometimes the communication between, uh, between teenager and parent is like, it's like speaking to a, to a brick wall and the, the communication sometimes doesn't go so well. I, I can remember our daughter Lydia when she was she was 18, she said, Daddy, can I take the car? Some, some of the girls and I are from the church, we're going to go to the movies, and, and there I am. I was like, she's asked me to go to Europe backpacking. And I, you know, it's going to be dark out at, at 9 o'clock. I don't know about that. And she said, Daddy, I, I'm 18. And I said, you know, it's a lot of money to go to the movies. I, I don't know. I've, I've got a job. You know, Dad, I'll be paying for myself. And so I'm, I'm trying to find all kinds of excuses, and she thinks she must be speaking to a brick wall, and Eventually, she gets through the brick wall when she says, Daddy, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't do drugs, I don't run around with people that do. I could do those things, or I could go to the movies tonight. <laughs> I say, take my credit card. Let me, let me lease you a car to go to the movies, just to the movies. You know, sometimes communication is very, very difficult. You think you're speaking to a brick wall. Sometimes it seems like that way when we're talking to people about Jesus. It's like they hear us, but they don't really hear us. It's like we're doing the best we can. We're, we're stammering and stuttering, but, but we're getting the essential gospel out, and it just seems to be bouncing off like a, like a brick wall. It, it just doesn't penetrate their heart. It's like their mind can't be reached. And then there are other times... When we find ourselves in a situation where God has kind of put our arm behind our back and he's twisting our arm and we just know we've got to say a, we've got to say a little word for Jesus or he's going to break my arm. And all of a the sudden, there's a light in the person's eyes. And unexpectedly, the light in their mind has turned on. And you can tell there's something going on in the life of that person. Well, the story we're going to, to read this morning is a story about a man known as Matthew. Matthew's a very interesting person because he's the most unlikely disciple Jesus could have ever have chosen. Uh, well, let's go ahead and let's look at the passage together. It's in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And, and then there's, there are several things I want to say to you this morning from this passage. The, uh, Matthew chapter 9, let's begin in verse, in verse 9 and we'll go through verse 13. This is what Matthew wrote. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. 
When the disciples saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I want you to notice first in this passage that nothing is impossible with God. That Jesus initiates a relationship with an outcast. He was the most unlikely candidate to be a follower of Jesus in the village of Capernaum. He was a tax collector. Tax collectors were despised by all except other tax collectors and other outcasts. The average ordinary person in Capernaum would have looked at Matthew and thought he was the scum of the earth. He was a liar, a thief, and worst of all, a traitor. He collaborated with the Romans in collecting taxes which were a heavy burden to the Jewish people. And Jesus initiates a a relationship with him. He's very much unlike Jesus, but Jesus approaches him. That's That's what I love about Jesus and what you love about Jesus is that Jesus has a way of crossing all kinds of barriers. As you study the life of Jesus, it's it's amazing how he could relate to people from every walk of life. For example, if we just went back to, well, we just went to John chapter 3 and we looked at the man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a well-respected rabbi, very well-educated, probably wealthy, highly regarded, very moral, but not a genuine follower of God. And Jesus spoke with him at night and carried on a conversation with him just like Jesus knew what he was talking about. Well, in John chapter 4, he goes to a person on the other end of the spectrum from Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman was immoral. Well, Nicodemus was moral. The Samaritan woman was illiterate. Nicodemus was very literate. The Samaritan woman was immoral. Nicodemus was a very upstanding man. She was irreligious. He was very religious. And Jesus struck up the conversation in the most casual of ways. Hey, how about giving me a drink? And then quite naturally, he took that conversation from give me something to drink to pressing her about her relationship with God. And here he is approaching a a tax collector. The more like Jesus we become, the more comfortable we are in our relationship to Jesus, the easier it is for us to relate to all kinds of people. We're not intimidated by very wealthy, highly intelligent people, and we're not put off by very immoral people. We realize that all people have been created in the image of God. Everybody is broken inside. Something is wrong with the well-educated, highly regarded businessman as well as the 
the, the, the person on the street who doesn't know much about the wealth and the capital of life, but knows quite a bit about the dark hallways and byways of the city. The more like Jesus we become, the more comfortable we are just interacting with people because he shows us exactly how to do it. He was such an interesting person, our Savior. And so here is Matthew, this, this, this person on the fringes of Jewish society. And Jesus says, follow me. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on in Matthew's heart, but let me give you a couple of scenarios of what might actually have happened that day. Matthew's heart would have been hard because the life he had lived was a despicable life. His life would have been hard. His heart would have been hard. In fact, you know from our study in the book of Ephesians that Paul says that Every person outside of Christ is spiritually dead, spiritually enslaved, and spiritually condemned. Over in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul said their mind is dark, their heart is callous. So there's this hard-hearted man whose mind is darkened, his heart is callous, and Jesus says, follow me. It might have been much like what happened when Jesus spoke to Lazarus. You remember Lazarus? Lazarus had been dead for four days. His body had been placed in a tomb. Decomposition had set in. Jesus goes to the tomb. He says, roll away the stone. The sisters, Mary and Martha, say there's going to be an unbelievable stench, an odor. The, the, The Jews did not embalm like the Romans did, and so decomposition would have already would already have been well underway. Jesus said, "Roll away the stone." They say it's going to smell. Jesus looks inside that that tomb, and he says, "Lazarus, come forth!" And just like this, that corpse was brought back to life, and the decomposition had been reversed, and he came out not as a not as a zombie, but as a as a human being brought back from physical death to physical life. Well, maybe that's exactly what happened to Matthew. Maybe there was nothing going on in Matthew's hard, dead heart. Maybe there were no thoughts about God, no inclinations toward God. And Jesus said, follow me, and the power of his word brought Matthew to life. This is what Psalm 29, verse 4 and 5 says about the word of the Lord. Matthew 29, 4 and 5 says, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. So maybe that's exactly what happened to Matthew. Nothing in him was inclined toward God Jesus spoke to him and he was transformed. Just as Lazarus was brought from physical death to physical life, Matthew was brought from spiritual deadness to spiritual life with merely the spoken word of Jesus. Or, what even may, might be a little bit more likely, 
something was going on in Matthew that nobody else knew anything about. Matthew's tax booth would have been in Capernaum. It would have been a rather lucrative uh, tax office. And Jesus had a significant ministry in Capernaum before he called Matthew to become his disciple. Jesus healed people, preached sermons, walked the streets and spoke to the crowds. And it's not unlikely that, that Matthew would have heard Jesus' teaching or he would have heard about what Jesus was teaching. It's not unlikely that, that one evening, Mark tells us in Capernaum, the whole city gathered at the home where Jesus was staying. They brought to him all who were sick and demon-possessed. He healed the sick and cast out demons all night long. And it's not unlikely that Matthew might have been on the fringes of that group looking in. And something was going on in Matthew that nobody else recognized. Nobody else would have ever thought of. In fact, they would have thought that it would be impossible for anything spiritual to be going on in the heart of a man who has sold his soul to the Romans for a lucrative career. Uh, Jesus knew. And when Jesus looked him in the eyes, and Jesus wasn't afraid to look somebody in the eyes, Jesus knew exactly what the spirit of the living God had been doing in this man. Lovingly drawing him to a place that when Jesus said, follow me, he wouldn't debate him. Oh, you listen, I'd love to, but I've got to get things settled up. I've got a lucrative career. I've got a significant portfolio. Uh, I, I got to take care of a few things. No, the Spirit brought him to the place that when Jesus said, follow me, he got up and followed him. That's the way that Jesus normally works. Lovingly bringing people to the point, and we have no idea when we say to them, Jesus died for you that Jesus may already have been doing a great work in that person's life. Just mark this down. Nothing is impossible with Jesus. Nothing is impossible with Jesus. He initiates a relationship with a social outcast. The second thing I want you to notice is don't be surprised when sinners respond to a gospel invitation. Don't be surprised when sinners respond to a gospel invitation. Matthew's response was immediate and he followed in an unreserved kind of way. He followed him fully and and completely. Notice what, what Matthew writes about the story It says, he said to him, follow me. He got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. The point that Matthew is making about himself, the way that he followed Jesus was inviting other people to follow Jesus. 
If we had time, we could, we could go over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 15. And this is what Mark wrote about that particular moment. When Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, now this is Matthew Levi, the tax collector. He's in his home, surrounded by the people that would associate with him, which good Jewish people wouldn't have associated with, and he's introducing them to Jesus. He's introducing them to the disciples of Jesus. It says, when Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It's an amazing scenario. Jesus says, follow me. Okay, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means you throw a dinner party and you invite the people that you know that don't know Jesus to meet Jesus. Well, you might think, well, this is kind of a one-off. This is kind of a a, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of thing. Well, you go back to John chapter 1 for just a moment. Peter invited, I mean, Jesus invited Andrew and John the Apostle to spend an evening with him. The very next morning, Andrew goes and he gets his brother Peter and he brings his brother Peter to meet Jesus. The very next day, Jesus walks up to a man by the name of Philip. He says, follow me. What's Philip do? Philip goes and finds a man by the name of Nathaniel. And Nathaniel comes to believe in Jesus. It's a New Testament pattern. See, for us, discipleship is primarily about our spirituality personally. Reading the Bible. Memorizing scripture. Knowing theology. Developing a prayer life. All of those things, very, very important. Very much so. Equally important for discipleship is sharing your faith with people that don't know Jesus. Not long after I was saved, the man that had won me to faith in Christ was discipling me, and he said, who have you, who have you told about, about this? I haven't told anybody. What about your stepdad and your mom? No, I haven't mentioned it to him. How about all your friends who don't know Jesus? You said anything to them? No, really, I haven't said anything to anybody. He says, when a person's saved, they tell everybody that they've met Jesus. And so I said, so what you're telling me is when a person gets saved, they go and tell their stepdad and their mom. Yeah. And then they go tell all their friends. Oh, that's what everybody does. I said, all right, if that's what you do, then that's what I'll do. And so I went told my stepdad, who was my third stepfather at that time, he was atheist, he didn't have any interest. My mom was con- concerned that I'd, I'd uh, fallen into a cult. Uh, my friends, who I'd spent my entire life growing up with, playing Little League, baseball, and Pop Warner football, and middle school, high school, they were just so put off by it. They just, they just wrote me off. And, and so I, I, I said, I, I told everybody, but nobody seems to be very interested. And he said, well, you haven't told everybody. I said, well, who else am I supposed to tell? Have you been back to the high school yet? Well, I said, yeah, I'm sophomore in college now. No, I haven't been back to high school for a couple of years. He says, everybody goes and tells their high school teachers. And so I, I said, so what you're telling me is when a person gets saved, he goes back to his high school and he tells his high school teachers that he's become a Christian. He says, when you were a high school kid like you were, yep, that's what they do. I said, all right, I guess that's what I'll do. 
And so I went back to my high school and I, and I would tell my teachers, some of, them, uh, some of them embraced me and some said, I'm so proud of you. And others said, you know, I don't think any more highly of you than I did when you would sleep in my class, uh, get out. And so I had all kinds of reactions from it. But while he might have exacerbated just a little bit and his discipleship stretched it just a little bit that everybody does it, at least if you follow Jesus, that was the typical pattern in his day. And so it's so interesting that Matthew throws a dinner party and the people that he invites are a little bit messy. You can imagine what's going through the, through the disciples' mind, the four fishermen who are at this time his closest followers, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and what the religious leaders are thinking. Look at the people he's associating with. If they bring their kids into our children's ministry, who knows what they're going to say? If these, if these lost kids come into our youth ministry, they'll probably use profanity. They might not know they're not supposed to use profanity. They maybe have never been taught like you and I were taught. I can't have my kids associating with kids that use bad language. Self-righteousness like that will often come back to bite you. That is when, when Jesus begins to work in people's lives, it's in the lives of messy people. Now, fortunately, I've never had anyone come to me and say, Pastor, you know, my, my four-year-old learned a bad word, and so my question is, did he learn it from the teacher? No, he didn't learn it from the teacher, but from his family that's been visiting. And I said, well, this family that's been visiting, they've never been in church before. He's only saying what he's heard in his home. Let's be patient, let's be forbearing, let's be, let's be a, little bit, a little bit forgiving, and let's help teach our children at a very young age, that not, everybody, not everybody's raised in a Christian family with a Christian home, with Christian sensibilities, and it's, it's going to be a little bit messy. And so, as the disciples are looking at these people, they're thinking, man, that's a, that's a rough crowd he's gathering around with. And that's exactly what the self-righteous Pharisees thought. He's associating with the wrong kind of people. Now, Matthew's response is stunning. That Matthew would think enough of inviting these people to meet Jesus as a part of his discipleship. But I want you to notice, thirdly, that Jesus' mission should be our mission. He came to call sinners and not the self-righteous. Now, the thing about Pharisees is Pharisees always speak behind the scenes. Uh, they whisper and complain and, and, uh, and nitpick away. So that's what we see right here. Uh, they don't have the courage to face Jesus and say, why are you associating with irreligious people? They like standing off just a little bit and saying, can you believe that he associates with irreligious people? So they ask this question to the disciples. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Which was a, a sign of friendship. That you would eat with people that were your friends. You would eat with people that you're developing relationship with. Why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? 
Uh, They hadn't seen that Jesus' t-shirt on the back said, friend of tax collectors and sinners. The question was asked numerous times about Jesus. Why do you eat with irreligious people? Well, Jesus isn't going to let the disciples take the heat, so he steps forward. And he says, when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Now, he's not suggesting that the Pharisees are spiritually healthy. What he's saying is people that are sick who think they're healthy, there's nothing you can do for them. Uh, I could break my arm and go see Dr. Harrell, orthopedic surgeon. And Dr. Harrell says, you've got a broken arm. I'm going to have to set it, going to do some surgery, going to put a pin in it, going to have to put it in a cast. It's going to be immobile for a while. And I could say, well, Dr. Uh, Harrell, there's nothing wrong with my arm. I can move my thumb. My thumb is working just fine. My arm is fine. I don't need surgery. I don't have any any problem with my arm. There's nothing he can do for me if I refuse to acknowledge my problem. Jesus is saying, I can't do anything for a person like that. But I've come to call the sinner, those who know they are sick. And when Jesus begins to work in a person's heart, you don't have to convince them there's something wrong with them. They know there's something wrong with them. In the world's eyes, they may be the most moral of people, and they may be genuinely moral by the world's standards. Good husband, father, well-respected member of the community. But when, when Jesus begins to work in them, they realize there's something broken with me. Something's wrong with me. It's deep inside my soul, and I don't know how to fix it. When Jesus begins to work in a person's life, whether they're moral or immoral, whether they're religious or idolatrous, whether they're agnostic or Baptist, when Jesus begins to work in them, they realize there's something wrong in me. And so he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm a physician for the sick. And so he says to these highly regarded and respected uh, religious scholars, the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. Now, the Pharisees were well-educated. Most of them were rabbis. They'd been to rabbinical training, rabbinical schools. Some of them would have had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized word for word. And not only did they know the Bible, they knew all of these rules and regulations and stipulations that they had put into religion that was, in their minds, equal to the Bible. So when Jesus would say, go and learn what this means, they would have taken that as a personal insult. Because he quotes from Hosea. And he says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. See, they were very, very astute on the sacrificial system. They knew exactly what kind of offerings needed to be offered at particular festivals and on particular days in order to follow the word of God. But there was something wrong in their heart. They lacked compassion. 
What does he mean by compassion? Uh, We just sang it in a song a few moments ago. Uh, Compassion is being a physician for the spiritually sick. It's taking a risk. It's stepping out on the, on, a, on the ledge and saying to someone at Kroger, I, I pray God gives you a blessed day today. Thank you for your service. It's walking behind a person stocking the shelves at Target. And the thought comes to my mind, speak a good word for Jesus. It's the spirit of the living God. I'm not that good, and you're probably not either. So the spirit of God brings it to my mind, and I just take the opportunity to to throw a little gospel seed, a little gospel water, because I have no idea what's going on inside him. This may be the son of a Baptist deacon And he's living with another man. And he's got a mom and a dad that are praying for him. Got a church that watched him grow and then abandoned the faith. And Jesus is working in him. Nobody knows it except Jesus. And the guy's stuck in the shelf. You just stick your head around and say, The Lord bless you today. Hope you have a great day. See, that might be as far as you are in your witnessing. Uh, I I understand that not everybody's at the same place. I mean, you may have a seminary degree, but you're you're pretty timid about sharing your faith. So you you can say, I got to start somewhere. Okay, start, start right there. Start right there. That's a pretty good place to start. It's not where you want to live your life. It's not where you want to camp out. It's not where you want to, it's not where you want it to end, but it's, it's a place to start. Pray you have a great day today in the Lord. Lord, blessings on you. We have no idea that may be Matthew. And the Lord takes that little word and he uses it like an arrow. Just another arrow from all of the prayers that mom and dad are praying, that, that a church is praying. And God begins to do a new work, a fresh work, a real work, a deep work, a genuine work in that person's person's life. And we don't know, we we might not ever know it until, until heaven. We might never know till heaven. And in heaven, the guy in Target walks up to us and says, do you remember that day in Target? Well, if you're like me, you spend half your life in Target. That's where we do all of our dates, and it seems like, uh, I, I don't remember. I'm sorry. I've been in Target a thousand times. Three times a day for the last 35 years, I've been going to Target. I'm sorry, I don't remember. You might not remember, but I was stocking the shelf. I was running from God, and you spoke a word to me, and it was just like it was the final crack in the dam. You don't know it, but I called my mom that night and I said, Mom, I'd, I, I'd like to get my life right with the Lord. Can I come home? 
you bet you can come home. I've got your bed ready. I turn the light on every night. Your daddy and I prayed in that room every single evening for the last 17 years. You bet you can come home. And little did we know that we were the straw that broke the camel's back. Pastor, I like to be better at sharing, but I'm timid. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit intimidated. Then sign up, for the, sign up for the evangelism class in the next Deeper Life session. We've got two outstanding guys that will teach you how to share your faith in a winsome and compelling kind of way. Quite natural, normal, it's not difficult. You say, do I have to go out witnessing? I don't know. I haven't figured out. I don't know how far the class goes yet. Probably not. But you're making a big step in the right direction. And so Matthew invites these people and, and Jesus is saying, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Notice that phrase, I did not come to call. Let's make it positive. I did come to call sinners. So why did Jesus come to call sinners? Every time I find a phrase like that, I came for this, I underline it in my Bible because it it communicates to me, this is what he's all about. This is why he came. And why he came should be why we live. What brought him should move us to embrace his mission and message. So let me, let me conclude this morning by answering this question. What are we to do with a story like this? What are we to do? Well, we embrace the mission of Jesus. His mission was to, that he came to call sinners. Is that all that he came to do? No, he came to establish the church, but that's a major reason that he came. So we embrace the mission of Jesus. We recognize I'm not where I ought to be. I'm not where I even I want to be. I'm a little bit timid. I'm hesitant. I'm, I, I don't have a lot of confidence. So my first step is I'll sign up for the class. I'll take the class with Dawson Kratzer and Philip Brown. Next, next term in the Deeper Life. It's going to start in just a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going to sign up and I'm going to learn the rudimentary process of taking a casual conversation and, and bringing it to a gospel opportunity. That is, we're going to go to medical school. He's a physician who came to bring healing to the sick. So we're going to sign up for medical class. That's what we're going to do. We're going to sign up for a medical class on helping the sick. What's the second thing? We're going to seek out opportunities to plant gospel seeds. You know, we, we can only have the opportunities that we have. We can't, we can't manufacture opportunities that aren't ours. But Paul teaches in the book of Ephesians, you'll remember, that God lays out for us good work. We don't have to look for it. He lays them out in front of us and, and we walk in it. So we stand at our front door and we look to the left and we look to the right and we look across the street. All right, there's a, there's a part of our mission field. Uh, we go to the classroom where our fourth graders having a, having a classroom party and there's a number of 
parents gather there and there's a teacher and parents. There's our mission field. Uh, we go to the soccer field and we realize that soccer is, uh, is, is a part of, uh, of uh, helping our kids mature and develop and learn how to be a part of a team and to get good exercise. But as we're standing on the, on the field, just like I said last, uh, last week, we, we look and there's a group and there's a group, uh, there's a mission field. There's all, there's all kinds of opportunities around us. And so what we do is we just start throwing a little bit of gospel seed out. And lo and behold, don't be surprised if somebody responds. Just don't be surprised if one of the soccer moms begins to talk to your wife and She's drawn to her. She's never met anybody like your wife. Friendly, kind, vivacious, caring, not really good in the way she interacts with her kids. Gets very frustrated when the umpire misses a call. But other than that, stellar person. And that person gradually moving towards you has no idea the Spirit of God is lovingly pushing them your way. Finally, maybe, maybe you are here today and you're like Matthew. You can relate to Matthew. You're on the fringes of society. You're an outcast, not because you're a traitor or a vagabond of some sort, but you feel on the outside. You feel like you're on the edges of things. But something's happening inside you, and you can't explain it. You can't articulate it. You don't know religious language very well. You've never attended church very often. You don't even know where the book of Matthew was. You went to the table of contents. That's fine. I used to go to the table of contents all the time. I still have to with the Old Testament sometimes. I flip to the table of contents when nobody's looking, and, oh, yeah, it's... 487. So that's fine. But let me tell you, you wouldn't be here, you wouldn't be thinking the things that you're thinking if it were not Jesus drawing himself close to you and you close to him. And if he says, follow me, which he may be doing right this moment, make haste. Don't wait. Jump up. Follow him. In just a moment, we'll have prayer, and we'll have some staff guys here at the front, and we're going to sing together. We'll stand and sing together. Emily Powell, one of our communication interns, is going to come, and she'll dismiss us in a few minutes with a few announcements and prayer. So we're coming right to the end. But don't leave today if you're like Matthew. Talk to someone. Come down front and just... Whisper in the ear of one of the staff members, we'll introduce you to somebody. They'll take you out, talk with you privately, confidentially about how what happened to Matthew can happen to you. He can change you just like he changed him. I'm going to ask if you'll stand and let me lead us in a, in a word of prayer. Uh, Caleb's going to come and we're going to sing. Staff guys, be here at the front like I mentioned. And um, don't let these final moments slip away. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that...
however you did it, what you did in Matthew is miraculous. It's astounding. And when we think back to the historical context, it's shocking. Other side of the tracks, fringes of society. And yet, Father, there are in this church parents who name their children, name their children after that man. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to us, give us grace to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.